When it comes to successful sports startups, we've probably all got our favourite example or story, whether it's Catapult, Home Court, Second Spectrum or Strava. But for each one of these successes, there are many more examples of companies not thriving or even surviving. It's easy to see why a company succeeds or fails in retrospect, but for those in the ventures space, looking backwards for learnings holds only so much value and the pressure to turn something high risk into high reward is ever present. So what is it about a startup that signals this potential reward is high enough to warrant the significant risk? Is it the idea? the founding team, the stage of the company, or all of the above. On this part two of our series into sports entrepreneurship, we take a look at the specific challenges and opportunities that sport provides for investors. We consider the roles that different stakeholders can play in ensuring that startups continue to not only grow, but also why they're uniquely placed to find solutions to some of sport's biggest current and future challenges. I'm Sam Robertson, and this is One Track Mind. Hello and welcome to One Track Mind, a podcast about the real issues, forces and innovations shaping the future of sport. I'm your host, Sam Robertson. Now before we get started, you may have noticed a bit of a gap between episodes recently on the show. Amongst a heavy period of international travel for myself and a seemingly inescapable dose of COVID-19, the ability to keep our regular pace of content release has been severely challenged. Adding to that, we've also recently said goodbye to the show's first producer, Lara Chan Baker, who for the moment at least has made a move into the corporate world. Lara had a formative influence on One Track Mind and is already sorely missed, but we wish her well with her new role. With all of that said, we're hopeful that we're back on track now and look forward to sharing some really interesting content with you both today and in the coming weeks. On today's episode, we're discussing Sport and the Entrepreneur, Part 2, Ventures. My guests today are Todd Deacon and Christy Jenkins. Todd is a Managing Director at Techstars, sourcing sports tech investments globally for their venture capital fund. He's also a General Partner at Wildcard Ventures, which is a VC fund for Tennis Australia. Prior to this, in 2013, Todd founded Unscripted, a sports tech startup that was acquired in 2018 by the Players' Tribune. Todd has also worked in management consulting with Cricket Australia, the National Rugby League, Australian Sports Commission, Adidas, Quicksilver and Nike. Christy Jenkins is an associate at Blackbird Ventures and an advisor at Athletic Ventures. Christy has also represented Australia in three different sports, trampolining, crossfit and beach volleyball. Prior to that, she had a decade of management consulting experience working with leaders of companies including ANZ, Commonwealth Bank of Australia and Bupa. Christy also speaks and writes about the elite athlete mindset and how it can be applied to startups and leadership. Christy and Todd, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to this because we've had part one a couple of weeks ago talking to a couple of very recent founders in the sports startup space. And today I really want to talk to you both from a little bit of a different perspective. I guess the other side of entrepreneurship in sport, things like directing accelerator programs, being in the venture capital space, Christy particularly coming from your background as an athlete into this area. There's lots of different angles we can look at here today. But I think maybe to start off today, it'd be nice to hear a little bit about your backgrounds, a couple of minutes on that, but also 
just for some of our listeners that maybe are not familiar with some of the terminology, what is an accelerator program? What is the definition of venture capital, particularly as it relates to sport? Christy, let's start with you. Uh, a little bit about, I guess, what you do now and your background and why you came to be where you are today. When we speak about startups, it can often seem a little bit like a black box of mystery. And certainly I had that experience being an athlete and being a consultant before this. People were like, startups are cool. And I was like, cool. But what is a startup? Maybe Todd, you can disagree with me here, but essentially a startup is a company that is like technology enabled and growing really fast. And often that growth is fueled by external capital. And that's where things like an accelerator program and venture capital and angel investors can come in. So in exchange for owning a portion of the company, we give the founders a whole bunch of capital and money to help them accelerate the growth of their company and accelerator programs like Todd is running, also add a whole ton of mentorship and advice and a cohort-based program around that to also help educate those founders and help them speed up the growth of their company. Christy, I think that's right, exactly how you defined a, a startup, right? And you talk about venture capital and it's private money most of the time, although the money that goes into superannuation or pension funds, the big source of capital goes into venture capital, but venture capital funds are investing into private companies. So they're not on the public markets and not tradable. So they're kind of illiquid and they're high risk typically. And especially the stage that we're investing in, you know, very early stage companies that are sometimes at idea stage, sometimes they've started building a product, sometimes they've got a product in market and very early stages of commercializing it, but certainly very high risk. And that's why they need to be high growth because they've got a very high failure rate. And the way venture capital funds work is, you know, the majority of their profit or the return will come from a very small percentage of companies that they invest in. Obviously, you don't aim to have failure, but in reality, that's what happens. In terms of accelerator programs versus venture capital, they're all, they're all forms of venture capital. So Techstars is part of what I do. The other part is with Wildcard Ventures, which is a VC fund for Tennis Australia. They're both venture capital funds investing in startups. An accelerator program and, and Techstars is just another form of venture capital. So it's a fund, raises that from pension funds and superannuation funds and high net worth investors, family offices from around the world, pull that money into a fund. And then that money needs to be deployed through our model, which is an accelerator program. What we do is we invest in 10 companies at once. We work with them for a three month period. And the aim is to kind of make them venture capital ready, right? And, and that, what that basically means is they're ready to, after that three months or a little bit later, to raise a bigger round of money for their company. So they've progressed in you know, certain circumstances through that period. So that's an accelerator program. Venture capital funds, a little bit different. Typically write bigger checks, won't work intensively like we do with companies through an accelerator program, but still support them, of course. Yeah, I was going to ask you both about that role of venture capital in terms of the mentorship part. And this is a naive question on my behalf because there is an external view that it's just writing the checks, as you mentioned then, Todd. So Christy, you might want to comment on that. But I'm also interested a little bit in how you both arrived where you are today. Maybe this is a question in and of itself about maybe your colleagues that are in similar roles, whether they've had such broad backgrounds as, as yourselves, and Christy in particular, your background as an athlete. Are there parts of that that drew you to what you're involved in now or parts of that that make you good at what you're doing now, do you think? Yeah, I actually wish I had found startups and 
this ecosystem much earlier in my career because there are so many similarities between elite sport and founders and startups. A couple of examples there are probably this running at seemingly impossible goals. I think you're more likely to win the lottery than make the Olympics or something like 0.02% of athletes ever make it to a professional level. And, you know, the odds in really making it big and like building the next Google or Canva or Atlassian are probably about the same. So you have like these really, really driven people that have a huge risk tolerance running at seemingly impossible goals with heaps of energy. And that is so similar between sport and startups. And I think that's what's really drawn me to the space. And you also have this real bias towards long term thinking. You know, I transitioned sports between trampolining to beach volleyball. When I started beach volleyball, I was like, okay, I'm in my early 20s. Assume it's going to take a minimum of a decade to get good, to play for my country, to be on the world stage. And when you're, you know, starting a company from scratch and it's you and maybe one other person and an idea, you've got to have that same long-term thinking. Like I'm in this for like 7, 10, 20, 30 years in order to build something that will really have an impact on the world. So I just love this space. Like I'm never leaving. I'm transitioning out of being an athlete and I just like couldn't be happier to be here. You also asked about how do we support portfolio companies and founders that we've invested in. So each venture capital fund or investor does something slightly different. So I'm involved with Athletic Ventures, which is a syndicate of Australian pro athletes investing in startups. And what can we bring to bear that's unique? Well, obviously the profile of the athletes. So, you know, if we invest in a consumer company, like, having athletes promote your company on social media is essentially free marketing. We might come in and like help founders with team building and culture. And that's like a really unique value add that athletes can add because they've got that culture building from elite sport and they can bring that to a company. When I work at Blackbird Ventures, you know, we have a whole team that is set up to support founders. And some of the things we help with there is like their PR and comms. We have an entire talent platform for them to like help with hiring. We have a huge network of mentors. We have like over 300 mentors connected to Blackbird. So like if the investors don't know the answer to a founder's question, we can probably connect them with someone that does. So each investor helps in different ways. And that's part of what a founder has to look for. You're not just looking for money from an investor. You're also looking for the best partner that can help you. There's some really interesting things I want to return to later on in your response there, particularly around that impossible goal, I think, that you mentioned and the long-term focus. Before I do, Todd, it's slightly different. I'm sure you're a good athlete in your own right, but didn't rise to the same heights that Christy did. But successful founder, how does that shape who you are in what you do now in the in the VC space and indeed managing an accelerator program? Yeah, I think I take Nike's definition of an athlete. They say, if you've got a body, you're an athlete. <laughs> People come into this area from different worlds. In fact, Christy said that she was in consulting. I was actually in sports consulting for many years and worked with basically every major federation in Australia. And so understood the sporting environment really well, then set up a sports tech company. And I kind of came through a founder pathway into venture capital. People come from different walks of life into the VC space. Some people have come you know, purely through private markets and finance. So different kind of worlds lead into that. And then in terms of accelerators, I mean, what, you're, what you end up doing, like what Christy said, you know, they port founders probably slightly later or definitely later stage than accelerator programs, you know, with a whole world of support. We do it slightly differently where we're doing it intensively for a short period of time. We still support them post that period, but just in a different way. So we have like 150 odd mentors that are part of our program that are experts in different areas. 
They work intensively, you know, with the companies through that period. We're guiding them every day of the week. We bring in lots of guest speakers and run lots of masterclasses. And we're just trying to educate them, I suppose, on how to build a successful startup. And a lot of that is understanding failures in startups as much as anything. So I had plenty of mistakes in, in that we made in our startup and taking those kind of lessons learned and trying to avoid them for a founder is really important. So yeah, different kind of pathways into VC and different kind of models in terms of support. If we look at sport, and I'm interested actually what you view as sport, what is inside sport and what's outside of it, because it's pretty broad, I suppose, is what are you seeing about, I guess, entrepreneurship, innovation, the startup scene in your travels in sport and, and particularly what that looks like compared to maybe other sectors? And I guess a follow on from that is, what do you look for in sport and what's unique and maybe different about it, if anything at all? Sport's a funny one, right? Because you, you say a sports tech startup and what really is that? And the industry's sport and entertainment. And, you know, when I look for startups in this space, I kind of look for companies that have a client base in sport, but often have a client base outside of sport. The one issue with sport as an industry is it can be quite small, not always, but often it can be a small market and a tricky market to navigate for a startup. So one of the keys when you're looking for companies to invest in is that they're operating in big markets where you can you know, generate big companies. So I think one of the unique things of sport is it, it's kind of a big industry from the outside looking in because, you know, it's on television where a large portion of the world are fans of certain sports. There's big personalities and big names, you know, in terms of athletes. So it has this kind of perception of being probably bigger as, as an industry than what the reality is. That means you just got to navigate it a little bit differently. So I tend to look for startups that are maybe operating in sport. It's a great industry to launch, I think, a startup in because you can become famous and it's a good case study often and so forth. And what you start seeing is companies that might start in sport but move into health or there might be things they're doing in fintech in sport that applies to other industries or blockchains are really, you know, big thing that's happening at the moment. And there's a huge amount of activity happening in this space. Web3 and blockchain has the application in sport, but, you know, certainly well outside of that. Future of work has applications inside sport, but well outside of it. So I kind of look at it a bit like that, Sam, not just thinking about sports tech as high performance sport, where you're dealing with professional teams and clubs, which can be quite a narrow audience. We've spoken about it before, Todd, and I still agree with you here, because that sports market is segmented between all the different sports, obviously. And it is, you know, quite difficult to build a product for rowing that also works for football, that also works for gymnastics. And then you also have this long tail sort of model in sports as well, where you have a few professional sports that have a lot of money. So selling to them looks very different to the long tail of, you know, all these tier two and tier three sports that have no money. Um, and the product that you would have to build with them, you know, it has to be like relatively cheap and like, how do you get the margin there? So the market's segmented in unique ways. I agree with Todd that I'm looking for companies that cross other sectors or cross sports. Probably one of my passions is like human performance or human optimization. Like everybody wants to live longer, be smarter, sleep better, be healthier, be stronger, be faster. And why is that technology only going to be applied to athletes? Like we all want a piece of that eventually. Sport is like the perfect market to test it in and sell it in because those people are looking for every edge in performance and you can make that product work. And then you can sell that to the mass market. 
And similarly in the health space, you know, if you build a product that makes someone a little bit faster, a little bit fitter or healthier, that might also help solve a problem in the health space where someone is like struggling with that same dimension of fitness. Just listen to you both then, this is something that I've given a little bit of thought to in the last, I guess, couple of months in particular, because a lot of my research and work has been in developing ways of, I guess, determining value. I'm talking specifically about sports tech here, as it pertains to the athlete themselves. And I've heard from both of you there that it is quite a small market, and I totally agree with that. I think the perception is, is wrong, probably from the general public. It's quite small compared to some of the other sectors you talked about. But obviously, when you're talking about valuation of a company or whether or not someone would choose to invest in them, you're probably looking for the size of that area like you talked about Todd or Christy as you talked about the ability for it to transfer into another area like health but it's interesting to me and I I have reflected on this a little bit that sometimes something could be so niche that it's really only going to be specific to a single sport for a single purpose really which is maybe taking an athlete from good to great to me that's something very worthwhile about investing in and is a very good story but again maybe certain venture capital organizations wouldn't choose to invest in that because of the lack of or the perceived lack of return and i'm sure there's analogous examples in things like environmentalism right now as well things that we know are good and ethically responsible for the world to invest in and progress but maybe aren't going to make money straight away i mean I'm sure there's a crossover between the value, quote unquote, of a piece of technology and the valuation of that company, but it's not linear, is it? Like it's a little bit of a gray area. I mean, how are people handling this problem at the moment? I'm sure there's organizations out there dedicated to investing in these kind of problems. It's an awesome question, Sam, because venture capital is, it's a relatively new area of financing. It's something that doesn't suit all companies, right? So typically in venture funds, you're investing in companies that can return the whole fund. So one company, if you've got a $100 million fund, it needs to return the, have the capability of returning the whole fund. So you've got to have these outlier type companies and and that's, that's the kind of model it's in. But it's not the only source of capital for an early stage business. You can have a fantastic business in sport and sports tech that's doing something quite niche, like you define, that can be highly profitable, but it just doesn't, hit the dimensions of what a venture fund requires. There's different sources of capital. A lot of other private investors or or angel investors that might have a different view might be slightly lower risk in in some of those companies that you're mentioning, but still a a very worthwhile return. So venture capital is not always the answer in terms of whether you've got an idea and whether it's the right source of capital. And I think this is one of the misconceptions almost that you know, a lot of founders will get rejections. In fact, they'll get hundreds of rejections, you know, when they're talking to different venture capital type investors. But it doesn't mean it's a bad idea or it's not going to be a profitable venture. It probably also depends on what the founder wants their life to look like. You know, there are certain expectations with venture that you are going to shoot for that hundred times return. And to do that, you're going to have to work pretty hard over the next decade or two. And some founders just actually... They want to build a business that spins off profit, that makes an impact in the sport they care about. And the right type of funding for that might be angel funding. It might be debt. It might be a grant. It might be funding from the sport itself. It might be bootstrapping it with their own money. So you can absolutely build many, many different types of businesses and venture is just one slice of that. It probably is a nice segue onto something I wanted to talk about later on, but I think it fits quite well here, which is, I guess, the role of different people interacting with sport about not just investing, but also fostering entrepreneurship full stop. 
and again, this is another, I guess, philosophical question I've pondered over the years, which is I'm not totally clear on the role of professional sports or sporting organisations, which is my main touch point in the industry along with universities. Part of me says that a professional sport is there to make their athletes as good as possible. And that may not involve any innovation whatsoever if practice is fairly well established. We don't want athletes feeling like lab rats, for example. It's ethical problems with that. But then part of me says that sport is now a business and particularly the big US franchises, you know, they're even called sport and entertainment. So it's it's part of who they are and what they do. And, and of course, we've seen the rise of the athlete as themselves as the entrepreneur over time. You can throw everyone else in there as well, uh, governing bodies, government, some of the organizations we've already talked about. So Christy, on the athlete, I think this is a really fascinating area. Not only athletes like yourselves who've kind of moved into that later in their career or transition, but I'm actually quite interested in this idea of maybe athletes whilst they're involved, particularly in the team sports setting, in a club or an organization, playing that role as a almost a, a sounding board for new ideas as they come into the organization or almost using that organization to foster the new innovation. It's something that would require a bit of governance, but I, I'm interested in your thoughts on that as an idea. I'm so psyched about this topic, honestly. And, you know, working with Athletic Ventures over the last 18 months, we've really seen this come to fruition because you've seen athletes that are like, oh, yeah, like this seems like I might make a good investment as a like original reason for joining the syndicate to becoming so passionate about startups, helping founders, learning about business, learning how they can help. And there's just such a like a natural crossover between the founder mindset and the athlete mindset here. Like it's a really nice synergy. So I'm so excited to see athletes not just become investors as they are through athletic ventures, but also, you know, athletes become talent that joins those companies, you know, post their sporting career and even athletes becoming founders because they for sure have the right mindset to do that. Whether that happens within sports themselves or whether that happens through organizations like Athletic Ventures. Another one in Australia is called the Minerva Network, which is like mentoring for women. One of the things we want to get off the ground is like a fellowship for athletes to become operators and to, you know, become talent in those startups. So I don't know. Unfortunately, you know, like it's never going to be the top priority for sports because helping athletes do things outside of their sports, coaches sometimes feel like that's a distraction or like you should do that after your playing career. So there's sort of some perverse incentives for that to happen within the sport. But, you know, those athletes are showing the interest and the passion themselves and these private organizations are stepping up to fill that gap to let them be involved in startups. We had Bianca Chatfield on the show a little while ago, a former Australian netballer, and she did talk about that exact issue about as she was coming towards the end of her career, about how she was trying to balance, almost feeling guilty about what she was doing outside the sport, almost the perception of the coach feeling like she's might have taken her eye off the ball on preparing day to day and things like that. So it is an interesting balance, and I think you're right. But at the same time, I mean, we are seeing a lot of athletes encouraged into university study and things like that and spending time on that. So I don't really see a lot of difference in them spending time on this as another idea but I do take your point I think we have seen some large franchises around the world move into the investment space but for a lot in fact the majority of sports it's not the priority and, and maybe nor should it be just on the investment side in particular like the education around finances what does a portfolio look like what does risk mean in the context of investing there are some truly shockingly horrible statistics out there around you know the proportion of athletes that are like broke 
post their sporting career and never learn those financial management skills. So having that outlet during their career is really important. You talk about role of different, I suppose, areas within the sporting ecosystem and you go governing bodies and teams and wildcard ventures is something that we set up in about the last 12 months and that's the Venture Capital Fund of Tennis Australia. And this has been a little bit more of a trend over the last three or four years with governing bodies setting up their own venture funds and, and really leveraging their platform as a sport to you know provide a springboard for you know startups to prosper. And you look at the NBA, they've got a, a venture fund, MLB's got a venture fund, the NFL's got a venture fund. So there's lots of and a growing number of sporting federations that are seeing the opportunity to leverage their brand and get in early on companies that they may be a client of. They can support, they can help, you know, drive credibility and visibility through, you know, them being a client of that particular startup. And if they've invested early, sometimes they can generate into a really positive return. So that's effectively what we're doing at Wildcard Ventures with Tennis Australia is using the platform of, you know, the Australian Open, its other tournaments, its media business. It runs the high performance pathway for tennis from juniors through to Grand Slam champions, but also mass participation across the country. All those kind of aspects that it controls, you know, there's opportunities for startups and for the sport to benefit but it'll also financially benefit uh, Tennis Australia. They've made investments in some of these companies that they're working with. So yeah, the role is changing, I think, Sam. You wouldn't have seen sports years ago. The thought of investing in a company would have been very foreign. In fact, it still is foreign for a lot of sports today, but you know they're looking at how they diversify their revenue streams and build a stronger businesses, being able to invest more into you know, participation or high performance. And venture capital is one of those where it's a long-term play because you typically won't get a return for seven to 10 years. But sports have that advantage. They're usually not-for-profit organisations. They're around forever. They're not going to be sold. So they've got a long-term mentality, which suits venture capital. I wanted to ask you both about the global network or environment of sports entrepreneurs and are there enough and are they of good enough quality? And I know that's a, a pretty open question, but just listening to you both then, particularly around the role of the sports organisation, it seems like that might be a, a real way forward for, I guess, progressing some really good ideas. The obvious issue with it is this notion of fairness in sport and particularly in technology solutions that may be for the performance side of, of an athlete and I know that's only a very small fraction of what happens in startups in sport but I'll use that term democratization of tech or access to tech that becomes an issue when we start doing it across competing sports or competing organizations with one another we could arise at situations where I guess a, a certain franchise has developed a new tech that is accessible to their athletes and not others and some would say that's competitive advantage and others would say that's going beyond the very definition of what we have as fairness in sport but if I return to this notion of developing sports entrepreneurs, are there enough and are they of good enough quality? My observation on what you just said then, Todd, is maybe organizations, particularly governing bodies, are, can provide a nice breeding ground to develop those entrepreneurs. Because I think one of the things I've seen, in, and I'm very naive to this area compared to both of you, is it's very hard to see a founder or a founder team that has it all. So we might have someone who comes in with a very good idea, but they're probably going to be lacking on the business side and they might have come from high performance sport or might have been an athlete. And on the flip side, I don't even work in this space, but I can't tell you how many ideas I've had pitched to me that are just bad ideas. And they just, if they had to talk to anyone in sport, they would know full well that that's not going to work. 
So you talk about unicorn companies. I'm assuming you talk about the same about founders, unicorn founders as well, people that have it all. They're probably not out there. It's a good area to talk about. And Christy kind of tapped into it earlier, kind of saying there's a lot of consistency between elite athletes and founders. And when you're making investment decisions, probably the most important decision you make is whether it's the right team you're investing in. And, and you kind of said, you're seeing this and you're not even in venture capital where you're getting pitched different ideas, Sam. So teams are incredibly important. And you kind of look at those similarities where you know, there's a certain skill that they bring to the role. So look at that from a sporting point of view, you know, skills obviously really important. You know, their passion, their vision, their kind of hunger, all those kind of things are, are really important. I think the difficulty, if you kind of look at a professional athlete, skill is probably the easiest thing to measure in some respects because you have defined results in whether you're a sprinter or whether you're a footballer or whatever it might be, you know, they're measurable and increasingly so. I think it's harder when you're looking at founding teams to understand whether they've got the right, I suppose, complementary skills to you know, build a really big, sustainable, enduring company. So that's where you spend a lot of time initially is understanding what needs to go right for this company to work and where's their team today and teams evolve and how do these founders think and have they got the kind of skill set up that's going to you know most likely or the highest probability of resulting in success i think the one thing that probably over indexes in sport with founders that pitch different ideas is that there's a lot of passion in sports so there's a lot of people that love the industry right so they have ideas because it's an interesting industry but they don't necessarily have the background or pulled together a team of people with complementary skills that are going to be you know necessarily driving to success so there's a lot of people with a lot of passion there's a lot of people with a big vision they might have a lot of hunger but they might not have the underlying skills to build the company they're trying to build and you think about i know there's a lot of stuff happening in computer vision and ai and machine learning well that's a very specific kind of skill if you don't have that you know it's going to be pretty hard to build a company in that kind of area Sam, you kicked off that question with like, do we have enough entrepreneurs? Like I'm always going to say no until we are at a point where that's the number one career choice for any talented, smart, hardworking person. Like that is the top career choice. Maybe because it's a little fresher in my mind, you know, like three years ago, I didn't know anything about startups. Tom talks about like, do those founders have the raw talent? They obviously have the passion. This is the role of programs like Accelerators. We run a program called Giants at Blackbird, which is for idea stage founders. You have an idea, now what? And there is a huge knowledge gap. You know, when I came into this space, I was like, what does CAC mean? What's LTV? What's the growth rate I should have? How much capital should I raid? What's the pre-seed, seed, series A? Like any industry, it has its own jargon, it has its own expectations. A lot of it from what I've seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's like another language and there's that knowledge gap. And I'm super proud to run a program like Giants. We put 400 founders through it a year. I know Todd's got hundreds and hundreds of founders that he's helped through accelerators as well. And we want to help sports organizations. We want to help entrepreneurs. We want to help grow the ecosystem and the sector. And what we're starting to see in Australia, which we're a little bit behind the US probably here, is that the first generation of founders is going on to success and they're investing back in the ecosystem with money and mentoring for the next generation. And we're going to see that, you know, cascade and continue to grow until this does become the number one career choice for everyone. What about something like the reverse of giants? Would you ever take a, a really good founding team and not just ask them to pivot on their proposed company like 
literally try and pull them out of there onto something you think is going to be a really viable idea. And uh, Christy, I guess in the context of Blackbird, along the lines of finding a very good founding team and then selecting, I guess, the company or even just the idea, like you said, that you want them to pursue or, or are those people just so busy because we don't have enough entrepreneurs and they're already taken up? Are you kind of defining, let's say you, Sam, have a really good product idea, right, that you think has legs and you're going, how do I find the right team to build it and run with it? Sounds, that- sounds like Sam should do it himself, I think. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> <laughs> There's programs, I suppose, that help you find co-founders and, and things of that nature. Even Techstars runs you know, startup weeks and weekends and part of that is to meet people that you can help co-found companies with. You might have an idea yourself and you end up meeting a hold of people that start kind of leading into your idea, taking it one step further where you have a bundle of ideas in say sport, but you don't have the teams to, to bring it to life and you're trying to find complementary teams or the right teams to build around it. It's a good model. You should start it. You should stop this podcast, Sam, and, and start it from there. I would say that ideas are the easy part. Yeah. You probably agree with me, Todd. Yeah, it is. The execution is the hard part. And without fail, every founder that has a successful company will tell you that the idea that they started with is not what they're doing now. That idea is going to mm. evolve and change over time as you interact with like customers and people that are actually using your product. And it should. I mean, uh, we have the same saying with PhD students here. They propose a project they're going to do at the start of their three and a half years, and it's never the same. I've never seen it stay the same at the end of their three and a half years, and it probably shouldn't. You, you should learn things along the way. Just before I let you both go, time has flown by, but I want to spend the last five or six minutes just talking about the future, which we've talked about a little bit already, but in particular, what we expect to see in this space and maybe what you'd both like to see in this space, particularly in terms of models of engagement. I suppose we've talked about that a little bit already about the role of different sports stakeholders, so to speak, but maybe some new areas of focus. Todd, you've talked about computer vision. I mean, that is definitely a large one at the moment. I don't think we're at the end of that one yet. I think there's still more to play out, particularly maybe integration of that with other tech, but also global shifts, particularly in this country. We know we have an Olympic Games nine or 10 years away now. We've seen even recently as yesterday at the time of recording this, the Queensland government pouring money into this area, uh, I think $120 million in their budget announced a couple of days ago. So lots happening. What do we think is ahead? The areas where there's money being invested is probably a good way of looking at it. And not all of these things are necessarily going to make the world a better place, right? Or a healthier place. Some of them will, but you mentioned computer vision, machine learning, AI. I think there's, you know, we've really scratched the surface of that. We invested at uh, Wildcard in a, a company called Swing Vision that's doing something specifically in tennis. We think it's venture scale just in that vertical. You know, these guys are experts in computer vision and machine learning and, and they do ball tracking and player tracking off an iPhone and, and so forth. So I think there's a lot more that can happen in there. This is not in sport, but I think it's a good example of where machine learning is heading and its capability. If you look at, I think it's pronounced Dally, D-A-L-L-E. It's in actually art. It's really good fun. If you can get onto their uh, test, you can type in a short description and it creates a painting or a photographic thing. It's all done through machine learning. So it's kind of getting rid of artists and photographers. It's quite remarkable. Have a look at that if you've um, if you've got five minutes of time. So I'm a big believer in this whole kind of area of machine learning and AI, and I think we haven't scratched the surface there. I think there's going to be hyper-personalization of a lot of stuff. So, you know, we see this, starting to see this in 3D printing. I think we'll see a lot of equipment, footwear, 
lots of these types of things which you know become hyper personalized to the individual and we invested through Techstars in a company recently that does 3D printing of orthotics and the orthotic process can take many weeks and months to receive your orthotics. This actually fits the foot as well as the shoe it's going into. So super cool product. And uh, so I, I kind of like the idea of, you know, hyper-personalization, you know, and I think that's relevant across high-performance sport, but goes into broader society. Christy mentioned health and data. You know, we're all starting to wear Apple Watches and Fitbits and Garmin's and so forth. I don't think we've really scratched the surface on the data those devices are collecting and they're collecting more of it. You know, there's clearly a sport application, but a more broad health application. And uh, so I'm excited about that area. A lot of money going into blockchain and Web3. There's been a lot of controversy recently in certain projects, but I think there's still huge application in sport in a whole range of areas. So I think that's going to impact on lots of different aspects of sport, like ticketing and sponsorship and membership and fan engagement and media rights and merchandise and ownership models, right? So I think blockchain is a really interesting area, but it's you know really early days in that space. And then gambling, right? Don't finish with a, maybe a controversial one. USA opened up to sports betting. You know, there's a huge amount of capital being invested into that kind of market. And so that's another area that, you know, a lot of funds won't put money into. In fact, they're, you know, restricted from doing it, but there is actually a lot of money going into that area as well. So we really do need more entrepreneurs. You're right, Christy, <laughs> we've got a lot to work on. <laughs> Rob's given you like a huge list and he's given you the list based on like where the capital's going, which is super interesting for me actually, because I hadn't heard that breakdown mm. before. I'll give you my top three based on my personal interest. I'll just be completely biased here. So I'd also call out personalization, but I'd say more on like, you know, overlaying the data on that. So like, what does like completely personalized like nutrition or training or coaching styles look like when you're talking about like athletes and people? I think that's so exciting. Yeah, Can't wait for totally. that to happen. And that some of the early signs of that is like, now we're starting to see like training styles just for women or like people of this age or of like this body type. So I think it's only like 6% of sports research was done on women. Like the rest is all on men. You would probably know better than me, Sam. So you Sounds know, about right. we're starting to see personalization by demographic, but like wait till that gets to like you as an individual. As an athlete, I am actually psyched about VR. You know, we're sort of hitting the limits of performance because we're capping out the amount of training that we can do. And VR just like completely opens that up. You can put on a headset and I can go and pass a thousand beach volleyballs without having the physical exhaustion of being in the sand and doing that. I can put on a VR headset and like scout another team and try out different tactics and strategies against them and see how that would play out. And I can put on a VR headset and feel what it's like to be at the Olympics before I'm there. So I'm, you know, mentally prepared for that moment. Probably the third area I'm most excited about is media. CrossFit is always the example I give here. You know, that is a sport that went from like someone's backyard 10, 12 years ago to this like multi-billion dollar sport where it's got the largest participation event in the world with a CrossFit Open. And like, how did they do that when you have other sports like volleyball that's been around for, you know, hundreds of years that are still not that mainstream? The lever is media, right? Like CrossFit did all their own media. It's like watching ESPN, but they've done it all on YouTube. This is like such a ripe time for media to explode and for that to like enable different sports and different technologies and different founders and their companies to really burst onto the global stage. And that's because democratize the distribution. It's not owned by like 
just one TV channel anymore. It's like everyone can publish media everywhere. And the cost of productions obviously come way down. Like you can use your phone and a light and you're, you're set to go to make professional level production. Everyone has a phone, which means like every athlete is their own mini media company. The potential with that, the changing legislation in the US around name, image and likeness, just so much opportunity here. So I'm yeah, super excited about personalization, media and VR, my top three. Well, I think I'll double down on what I just said before. We we need more people working on this if we're going to move along some of those ideas at a pace that we'd like to see them. Fascinating. I mean, some of the stakeholders we've talked about today are, are all going to play a role in that or all should play a role in that in terms of even the humble university where I work, which is a sector that's ripe for disruption. In fact, many would argue needs to be uh, in order to remain viable. They have a role there as well in terms of ensuring there's efficacy behind those ideas as well. Maybe they haven't realized it well as in this country as, as they could have maybe in the, in the US. But yeah, the organizations, the governing bodies, the, uh, even the university, I think they all play a role in that. So it's a very exciting space. And I think you've both left that with a very exciting uh, vision of the future. Thank you so much for joining me, Todd and Christy. A real pleasure. Great, Sam. And I might, might finish with one final thought is that it's probably never been easier to start something. It's never been cheaper. You know, access to talent's probably been is easier than it ever has but also just from a technology side, what no code is doing for the non-engineer enables you to start something, test ideas with basically no money invested to get something started. So if you've got ideas as an entrepreneur or a potential entrepreneur, you've got to take that step into the wild, but it's never been cheaper and easier and more accessible than, uh, than any other time in history. So we need more people doing it. Well, you know that both of your uh, contact details will be in the show description, so you'll be inundated after this, I'm sure. But it's a really positive way to finish, and I guess, yeah, anyone listening, if you've got any ideas, talk to Todd and Christy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed this two-part series into sports entrepreneurship, a world that is still quite foreign to so many in sport. As mentioned, if you would like to learn more about Todd and Christy or any of the work that they do with Blackbird, Techstars, Athletic Ventures and Wildcard Ventures, links to their social media accounts are in the show notes. Otherwise, join us in a couple of weeks' time for episode 41, What's Next in Australian Football Performance. Until then, I'm Sam Robertson and this has been One Track Mind. One Track Mind is brought to you by Track and Victoria University. If you care about sport and its future as much as we do, please support us by subscribing, leaving a review on iTunes, or recommending the show to a friend. It only takes a minute, and it really makes a difference. If you want more where this came from, follow us on social media, on Twitter or LinkedIn at trackvu, at Instagram at track.vu, or head to our blog at trackvu.com. Thanks for listening to One Track Mind. See you next time.